There have been countless books and movies written about World War II, stories that give us the details of the fighting that raged across the globe as the Allied powers, consisting of a number of countries, but led primarily by the United States and Great Britain, fought the Axis aggressors, primarily Germany and Europe and Japan throughout the Pacific. Dozens of countries and millions of men were involved in the fighting, which lasted for six long, bloody years, starting with Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939 and lasting through Japan's surrender in August of 1945. Along with these soldiers and sailors and airmen came the journalists, who were many times right in the middle of the action, and many of whom never made it back. Their stories told of heroism and loss and of the side of war that helps us remember that war should always be the last resort. One of the most beloved journalists of World War II was Ernie Pyle. He always told his stories from the point of view of the common man. He took the time to record the names of every soldier and seaman he talked to, and he spoke with hundreds of men, on the ships, on the front, in the foxholes, in the hospitals, everywhere, and he wrote about the war as seen through their eyes. The readers at home couldn't get enough of his stories because he told them so well, and because sooner or later he was going to talk about one of their neighbors, someone they were missing, someone whose son was born the day before they shipped out, someone who lived down the street whose wife and family missed him and was wondering if he was still alive. Before the war, Ernie had served as a roving correspondent for the Scripps Howard newspaper chain, earning wide acclaim of his accounts of ordinary people in rural America. The accounts were often touching, because Ernie had that friendly style of writing that spoke to you as if you were sitting with him on the front porch somewhere in Iowa, sharing drinks in mason jars with the smell of roasting turkey wafting out from the open windows of a farmhouse. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 1944 for his spare, poignant accounts of dog-faced infantry soldiers from a first-person perspective. Harry Truman said of him, No man in this war has so well told the story of the American fighting man as American fighting men wanted it told. He deserves the gratitude of his countrymen. His wartime writings are preserved in four books, Ernie Pyle in England, Here is Your War, Brave Men, and Last Chapter. Reinforcing his status as the dog face's best friend, Pyle wrote a column in 1944 urging that soldiers in combat get fight pay, just as airmen were paid flight pay. And Congress did pass a law authorizing extra pay for combat infantrymen. The legislation was called the Ernie Pyle Bill. We're going to join Ernie as he embarks on a troop ship leaving North Africa, headed for Italy. Then, upon reaching Sicily, he'll join an American army unit as they fight their way northward toward the heart of France. We hear a lot about D-Day in Normandy, June 6th, 1944, when the Allies attacked the German defenses on the coast of France, but not as much about D-Day on the coast of Italy, where the other stage of the Allied attack on Europe was already taking place. After hearing Ernie's story, you'll have a better understanding of World War II and the men who fought in it than any other book or movie can give you. Sooner or later in this episode, or in Ernie's books, and we'll leave the link to those in the show notes for you, you'll hear the story of someone from your state or your town or your neck of the woods, and you'll smile for a moment, knowing that at least at that point in the war they were doing okay. And for a while, you'll feel like you're right there with them. Such was the magic of Ernie Pyle's writing. And now, excerpts from Ernie Pyle's book, Brave Men. Prelude. In solemn salute to those thousands of our comrades, 
great, brave men that they were, for whom there will be no homecoming ever. In June 1943, when our military and naval forces began fitting the war correspondence into the great Sicilian invasion patchwork, most of us were given the choice of the type of assignment we wanted, assault forces, invasion fleet, African base headquarters, or whatever. Since I never had the opportunity in Africa to serve with the Navy, I chose the invasion fleet. My request was approved. From then on, it was simply a question of waiting for the call. Correspondents were dribbled out of sight a few at a time in order not to give a tip-off to the enemy by sudden mass exodus. Under the most grim warnings against repeating what we knew or even talking about it among ourselves, we'd been given a general fill-in on the invasion plans. Some of the correspondents disappeared on their assignments as much as three weeks before the invasion, while others didn't get the call until the last minute. I was somewhat surreptitiously whisked away by air about ten days ahead of time. We weren't, of course, permitted to cable our offices while we were going, or even that we were going at all. Our bosses, I hope, had the good sense to assume we were just loping on the job, not dead or kidnapped by Arabs. After a long plane hop and a couple of dusty rides in jeeps, I arrived at bomb-shattered Bizerte in Tunisia. When I reported to naval headquarters, I was immediately assigned to a ship. She was lying at anchor out in the harbor, one of many scores, and they said I could go aboard right away. I had lived with the Army so long I actually felt like a soldier, yet it was wonderful to get with the Navy for a change, to sink into the blessedness of a world that was orderly and civilized by comparison with that animal-like existence in the field. Our vessel was neither troop transport nor a warship, but she was mighty important. In fact, she was a headquarters ship. She was not huge, just big enough so we could feel self-respecting about our part in the invasion yet small enough to be intimate. I came to be part of the ship's family by the time we actually set sail. I was thankful for the delay because it gave me time to get acquainted and get the feel of warfare at sea. We did actually carry some troops. Every soldier spent the first few hours on board in exactly the same way. He took a wonderful shower, bath, drank water with ice in it, sat at a table, and ate food with real silverware, arranged his personal gear along the bulkheads, drank coffee, sat in a real chair, read current magazines, saw a movie after supper, and finally got into a bed with a real mattress. It was too much for most of us, and we all kept blubbering our appreciation until finally I'm sure the Navy must have become sick of our juvenile delight over things that used to be common to all men. They even had ice cream and Coca-Cola aboard. That seemed nothing short of miraculous. We weren't told what day we were to sail, but it was obvious it wasn't going to be immediately, for there was still too much going and coming, too much hustle and bustle about the port. The activity of invasion preparation was so seething those last few weeks that in practically every port in North Africa, the harbor lights blazed, contemptuous of danger, throughout the night. There simply wasn't time to be cautious. The ship loading had to go on, so they let the harbor lights burn. Our vessel was so crowded, it took three sittings and officers' mess to feed the men. Every bunk had two officers assigned to it. One slept, while the other worked. The bunk assigned to me was in one of the big lower bunk rooms. It was terrifically hot down there, so the captain of the ship, a serious, thoughtful veteran naval aviator, had a cot with a mattress on it put up for me on deck, and there I slept with the soft, fresh breezes of the Mediterranean night wafting over me. 
"'Mine was the best spot on the ship, "'even better than the captain's. "'In slight compensation for this lavish hospitality, "'I agreed to lend a professional touch "'to the ship's daily mimeographed newspaper "'by editing and arranging the news dispatches "'our wireless picked up from all over the world during the night. "'This little chore involved getting up at 3 a.m., "'working about two hours, "'then sitting around chinning "'and drinking coffee with the radio operators "'until too late to go back to sleep. "'As a sailor, I didn't have much rest, but, as we say in the newspaper business, you meet a lot of interesting radio operators. In the week aboard ship before we set out on the invasion, I naturally was not permitted to send any columns. I spent the days reading and gabbing with the sailors. Every now and then I would run in to take a shower bath, like a child playing with a new toy. I got to know a great many of the sailors personally, and almost all of them by nodding acquaintance. I found them to be just people and nice people, like the soldiers. They were fundamentally friendly. They all wanted to get home. They were willing to do everything they could to win the war. One night I was talking with a bunch of sailors on the fantail, and they spoke thoughts you could never imagine coming from sailors' mouths. One of them said, Believe me, after seeing these soldiers aboard, my hat's off to the army, the poor bastards. They really take it, and they don't complain about anything. "'Why, it's pitiful to see how grateful they are "'just to have a hard deck to sleep on.' "'And another one said, "'Any little thing we do for them they appreciate. "'We've got more than they have, "'and boy, I'd go three miles out of my way "'to share something with a soldier.' "'A third said, "'Yes, they live like dogs, "'and they're the ones that have to take "'all those beaches, too. "'Few of us will get killed, "'but a hell of a lot of them will.' "'And the fourth said, "'Since hearing some of their stories,' I've been down on my knees every night thanking God I was smart enough to enlist in the Navy. And they're so decent about everything. They don't even seem to resent all the things we have that they don't. Now, these sailors were dead serious. It brought a lump to my throat to hear them. Everyone by now knows how I feel about the infantry. I'm a rabid one-man movement bent on tracking down and stamping out everybody in the world who doesn't fully appreciate the common front-line soldier. Our ship had been in African waters many months, but the Sicilian invasion was the first violent action for most of its crew. Only three or four men who'd been torpedoed in the Pacific had ever before had any close association with the probability of sudden death. So I knew the sailors went into that action just as soldiers go into that first battle, outwardly calm, but inside frightened and sick with worry. It's the lull in the last couple of days before starting that hits so hard. In the preparation period, fate seems far away, and once in action, a man is too busy to be afraid. It's just those last couple of days when there's time to think too much. One of the nights before we sailed, I sat in the darkness on the forward deck, helping half a dozen sailors eat a can of stolen pineapple. Some of the men of the group were hardened and mature. Others were almost children. They all talked seriously, and their gravity was touching. The older ones tried to rationalize how the law of averages made it unlikely that our ship, out of all the hundreds involved, would be hit. They spoke of the inferiority of the Italian fleet and argued pro and con over whether Germany had some hidden Luftwaffe up her sleeve that she might whisk out to destroy us. Younger ones spoke but little. They talked to me of their plans and hopes for going to college or getting married after the war, always winding up with the phrase, if I get through this fracas alive. As we sat there on the hard deck, squatting like Indians in a circle around our pineapple can, it all struck me as somehow pathetic. 
"'Even the dizzy of us knew that before long "'many of us stood an excellent chance "'of being in this world no more. "'I don't believe one of us was afraid "'of the physical part of dying. "'That isn't the way it is. "'The emotion is rather one of almost desperate reluctance "'to give up the future. "'I suppose that's splitting hairs, "'and that it really all comes under the heading of fear. "'Yet somehow there is a difference.' Those gravely yearned-for futures of men going into battle include so many things, such as seeing the old lady again, of going to college, of staying in the Navy for a career, of holding on your knee just once your own kid whom you've never seen, of again becoming champion salesman of your territory, of driving a coal truck around the streets of Kansas City once more, and, yes, even of just sitting in the sun once more on the south side of a house in New Mexico. When we huddled around together on the dark decks, it was these little hopes and ambitions that made up some total of our worry at leaving, rather than any visualization of physical agony to come. Our deck and the shelf-like deck above us were dotted with small knots of men talking. I deliberately listened around for a while. Each group were talking in some way about their chances of survival. A dozen times I overheard this same remark. Well, I don't worry about it because I look at it this way. If your number's up, then it's up. And if it isn't, you'll come through no matter what. Every single person who expressed himself that way was a liar and knew it. But hell, a guy has to say something. I heard oldsters offering to make bets at even money that we wouldn't get hit at all. And two to one, we wouldn't get hit seriously. Those were the offers, but I don't think any bets were actually made. Somehow it seemed sacrilegious to bet on our own lives. Once I heard somebody in the darkness start cussing and give this answer to some sailor critic who was proclaiming how he'd run things. Well, I figure that captain up there in the cabin has got a little more in his noggin than you have, or he wouldn't be captain. So I'll put my money on him. And another sailor voice chimed in with, Hell yes, that captain has slept through more watches than you and I have spent time in the Navy. And so it went on one of the last nights of safety. I never heard anybody say anything patriotic the way the storybooks have people talking. There was philosophizing, but it was simple and undramatic. I'm sure no man would have stayed ashore if he'd been given the chance. There was something bigger in him than the awful dread that would have made him want to stay safe on land. With me, that something probably was an irresistible egoism in seeing myself part of an historic naval movement. With others, I think it was just the application of plain, unspoken, even unrecognized patriotism. Fewer than a third of the sailors on our ship were regular Navy, and most of that third hadn't been in many years. The crew was chiefly composed of young landlubbers who became sailors only because of the war and who were longing to get back to civil life. Here are a few sketches of some of the men who made the wheels go round. Joe Raymer, electrician's mate first class, South Burgess Avenue, Columbus, Ohio, was a married man with a daughter four years old. Joe had been in the Navy from 1924 to 1928, so he knew his way around ships. Of medium height, he was a pleasant fellow with a little silver in his hair and cigar in his mouth. I don't know why, but sailors smoking cigars have always seemed incongruous to me. Before the war, Joe was a traveling salesman, and that's what he intended to go back to. He worked for the Pillsbury Flower People, and he had the central southern Ohio territory. He was a hotshot and no fooling. The year before he went back to the Navy, he sold more pancake flour than anybody else in America and won himself a $500 bonus. Warren Ream of Paradise, California, had worked for several years in the advertising departments of the big L.A. stores, 
Bullocks, Barker Brothers, Robinsons. He arrived overseas just in time for the invasion. Ream was a storekeeper third class, but that doesn't necessarily mean he kept store. In fact, he did a little bit of everything, from sweeping up to passing shells. Actually, he thought he wasn't supposed to be aboard ship at all, but he was glad he didn't miss it. His Navy life was a great contrast to his personal past. He was the kind of fellow who might well have been made miserable by the rough life of the Navy. But we were standing at the rail one day, and he said, I wonder what's happened to the old Navy we used to read about. I remember hearing of skippers who could cuss for 45 minutes without repeating themselves. But from what I've seen, skippers today can't cuss any better than I can. I'm disappointed. Harvey Herodine was a warrant officer, which means he ate in the wardroom and was called Mr. But a man's a man by any other name, and Mr. Herodine looked exactly what he was, a regular old-time chief petty officer. He had had orders to return to the States just before we sailed, but you wouldn't get an old-timer to miss a show like that. He got permission to postpone the homeward trip until after we had made the invasion. Mr. Herodine had retired from the Navy in 1935 after 17 years of it, twelve of them in submarines. He had met a Memphis schoolteacher, married her, and settled down there in a job at the Lind Air Products Company, making oxygen. He went back to the Navy in 1941 when he was 45 years old. After the invasion, he had orders to go back to America and serve as an instructor at a submarine school. His nickname was Spike, and his home was at Tanglewood Street, Memphis. Back home, he used to be a deacon in the London Avenue Christian Church. He begged me not to make any wisecracks about his cussing and tobacco chewing when I wrote him up. Okay, deacon. Joe Talbot was an aviation ordnance man first class, and since there was no aviation aboard our ship, he was a round peg in a square hole. Of course, that wasn't his fault. What he actually did was a little bit of everything when things were normal. During battle, he was the head of a crew down in a magazine of big shells, and upon orders, passed more ammunition up to the gun batteries above. Joe was a black-haired, straight-shouldered southerner from Columbus, Georgia. In civil life, he was a photographer on the Columbus Ledger Inquirer. The last big story he photographed was Eddie Rickenbacker's crash near Atlanta. Joe had been married four years. His wife worked at the Woolworth store in Columbus. This was Joe's second time in the Navy. He had served from 1931 to 1935 and went back again in 41, but had no intention of making it a career. His one great post-war ambition, he said he was going to do it in the first six months after he got out, was to buy a cabin cruiser big enough for four, get another couple, and cruise down the Chattahoochee River to the Gulf of Mexico, then up the Suwanee, making color photos of the whole trip. Tom Temple, or rather Thomas Nicholas Temple, was a seaman second class. His father deliberately put in the middle name so the initials would make TNT. Tom, aged 19, was tall and thin, very grave and analytical. He talked so slowly, I thought sometimes he was going to stop altogether. After the war, he hoped to go to Harvard and then get into the publishing business. Tom told me his mother was a high school teacher at Far Rockaway, Long Island, and that she wrote on the side. She used to write for the magazine Story under the name Gene Temple. Tom's father was wounded in the last war, and since then has been in the big veterans' hospital in Albuquerque, only a short distance from my home. Tom said that when he first went into the Navy, the sailor's profanity shocked him, but before long it rolled off his back like water off a duck. He was very sincere and thoughtful, and one of my favorites aboard ship. Joe Ederer was a lieutenant commander and chief engineer of the ship. 
"'It was also my part-time host while I was aboard, "'since I did all my writing in his cabin. "'Furthermore, I ate his candy, smoked his cigarettes, "'used his paper, and would have read his mail "'if I could have found it. "'Commander Itterer had been at sea "'for more than a quarter of a century. "'He came from the merchant service, "'and he indulged a constant pleasant feuds "'with his regular Navy friends. "'His home was at Northeast 35th Place, "'Portland, Oregon.' His wife was used to waiting, so perhaps his absence was not as hard on her as it is on many wives. They had a fifteen-year-old boy upon whom the chief engineer doted. There were two pictures of his family on his shelves. Edward was one of the few officers who were genuine salts. He was not exactly a Colin Glen Cannon, but they had many things in common. Edward spent many years on the Orient run and had a personal hatred for the Japs. He had been with our ship ever since he was commissioned in 1941 and hoped the invasion would soon be over so he could get to the Pacific. Like all sailors, he wanted some day to get five acres, preferably in the Oregon woods, build a cabin, and have a creek running past his door. If he ever does, he will probably go nuts. Dick Minogue, boatswain's mate first class, had been the Navy six years and intended to stay. He came from White Bear Lake, Minnesota, and aboard ship they called him Minnie. It's men like Minogue who formed the backbone of the present-day Navy. He was young and intelligent, yet strong and salty enough for any job. He definitely had the sea about him, but it was modern sea. He wore his bosun's pipe from a cord around his neck and a white hat cocked far down over one eye. He said the worst moment he ever had in the Navy was while piping a British admiral over the side. Dick had a chew of tobacco in his mouth and right in the middle of his refrain, the whistle got full of tobacco juice and went gurgly. Arch Fulton, of East 129th Street, Cleveland, Ohio, was an electrician's mate second class. Before the war, he worked as a lineman for the Cleveland Illuminating Company. Fulton was married and had two children. He was 37, much older than most of the crew. He was born a Scotsman and went to America at 17. His parents were still living at Kilmarlock, Scotland. He had a brother a sergeant major in the British Army, and a sister who was a British wren. Arch had a short pompadour which slanted forward and gave him the look of standing with his back to the wind. He had a dry Scottish humor. He took the Navy in his stride. Back in Cleveland, he used to read my columns, so you can see he was a smart man. Then there was George Edward Mallory of Orange, Virginia. He was 32, and before the war he worked as an unloader at a chain grocery store in his hometown. He'd been in the Navy for a year and was operated on for appendicitis after arriving in the Mediterranean. He used to get seasick, but it didn't bother him any more. He was tall, quiet, and serious. He had never waited table before, but he'd become an expert. Another was Fred Moore, who was little and meek. Fred had a tiny mustache and a perpetually startled look on his good-natured face. He was very quiet and shy. His home was at 10th Avenue, South Birmingham, Alabama. He was just 21 and had been in the Navy only a few months. He liked it fine and thought he might stay in after the war. Before joining up, he did common labor at army camps and fruit farms. Fred had a gift. He was a wizard at baking delicate and beautiful pastries. He made all the pastry desserts for the officers' mess. He had never done any cooking before joining the Navy, except to fry a few hamburgers at a short-order joint. He couldn't explain his knack for pastry baking. It was just like somebody who could play the piano beautifully without ever taking lessons. The whole ship paid tribute to his streak of special genius. Fred said he'd never been seasick nor very homesick, but during some of our close shaves in action, 
He said he sure was scared. In wartime, it's an axiom that the closer you get to the front, the less you know about what's going on. During the invasion of Sicily, we would often say to each other that we wished we were back in New York so we could find out how we were doing. During the first two days, we in our sector had no word at all about the two American sectors to our right. Even though we were within sight and sound of their gunfire, we knew nothing about how they were faring. The people in America knew, but we didn't. Aboard ship, we were somewhat better off than the troops on land, because we did get some news by radio. But many of the troops inland didn't know about the bombing of Rome, for instance, till nearly a week later. The ship's news came mostly from BBC in London, the German radio in Berlin, and our little daily newspaper assembled from worldwide shortwave broadcasts picked up during the night. Our skipper, Commander Rufus Young, felt that a lack of news was bad for morale, so he did all he could to let the ship's crew know what was going on. He was the one who asked me to edit that daily mimeograph paper, and he also took one radio operator off his regular watch and gave him his own time just to sit and sample various air channels for news. This operator was Frank Donahue, radio man second class, from 87th Avenue, Jamaica, Long Island. He had started in as a child with the commercial cable company and had been a radio operator for 18 years, though he was still a young man. He was working for Press Wireless when he joined the Navy in 1942. Donahue had so much experience taking down news patches that he had a good news sense. He took as much pride in our little paper as I did, and it got so he would sort out the stories by subjects before waking me at 3 a.m. Then while I assembled and rewrote the stuff, he would bring us cups of coffee and cut the stencils for the mimeograph. We did our work in a big steel-walled room where about 30 radio operators were taking down code messages by typewriter. So it did seem sort of like a newspaper office. Throughout the invasion period, we missed getting out our paper only one day. That was on the morning of our landings. It was always daylight when we finished, and I would stop on the bridge to talk for a little while with the men of the early morning watch. Getting up at three every day and not getting any sleep in the daytime almost got me down before it was over, but there was considerable satisfaction in feeling that I was not entirely useless aboard ship. Off Sicily, as everywhere else in the world, dawn is the most perfect part of the day, if you've got the nerve to get up and see it. For the best part of a week, our ship had been lying far out in the harbor, tied to a buoy. Several times a day, general quarters would sound and the crew would dash to battle stations, but it was only an enemy photo plane or perhaps even one of our own planes. Then we moved into a pier. That very night, the raiders came and our ship got her baptism of fire. She lost her virginity, as the sailors put it. I had got out of bed at 3 a.m. as usual to stumble sleepily up to the radio shack to go over the news reports which the wireless had picked up. There were several radio operators on watch, and we were sitting around drinking coffee while we worked. Then all of a sudden, around 4 o'clock, general quarters sounded. It was still pitch dark. The whole ship came to life with a scurry and rattling, soldiers dashing to stations before you'd have thought they could get their shoes on. Shooting had already started around the harbor, so I knew this time it was real. I kept on working, and the radio operators did too, or rather, we tried to work. So many people were going in and out of the radio shack that we were in darkness half the time, since the lights automatically went off when the door opened. Then the biggest guns on our ship let loose. They made such a horrifying noise that every time they went off, we thought we'd been hit by a bomb. Dust and debris came drifting down from the overhead to smear up everything. Nearby bombs shook us up too. 
One by one the electric light bulbs were shattered by the blast. The thick steel bulkheads of the cabin shook and rattled as though they were tin. The entire vessel shivered under each blast. The harbor was lousy with ships, and everyone was shooting. The raiders were dropping flares from all over the sky, and the searchlights on the warships were fanning the heavens. Shrapnel rained down on the decks, making a terrific clatter. The fight went on for an hour and a half. When it was over, and everything was added up, we found four planes had been shot down. Our casualties aboard were negligible. Three men had been wounded, and the ship had suffered no damage except small holes from near misses. Best of all, we were credited with shooting down one of the planes. This particular raid was only one of scores of thousands that have been conducted in this war. Standing alone, it wouldn't even be worth describing. I'm mentioning it to show you what a taste of the genuine thing can do for a bunch of young Americans. As I have remarked, our kids on the ship had never before been in action. The majority of them were strictly wartime sailors, still half civilian in character. They'd never been shot at and had never shot one of their own guns except in practice. Because of this, they'd been very sober, a little unsure, and a little worried about the invasion ordeal that lay so near ahead of them. And then, all within an hour and a half, they became veterans. Their zeal went up like one of those skyrocketing graph lines when business is good. Boys who had been all butterfingers were loading shells like machinery after 15 minutes, when it became real. Boys who previously had gone through their routine lifelessly were yelling with bitter seriousness, "'Damn it, can't you pass those shells faster?' The gunnery officer, making his official report to the captain, did it in these gleefully robust words, "'Sir, we got the son of a bitch.' One of my friends aboard ship was Norman Somberg, aerographer third class of Northwest 62nd Street, Miami. We'd been talking together the day before, and he told me how he'd studied journalism for two years at the University of Georgia, and how he wanted to get into it after the war. I noticed he always added, If I live through it. Just at dawn, as the raid ended, he came running up to me full of steam and yelled, Did you see that plane go down smoking? Boy, if I could get off the train at Miami right now with the folks and my girl there to meet me, I couldn't be any happier than I was when I saw we'd got that guy. It was worth a month's pay to be on that ship after the raid. All day long the sailors would gabble, 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 each telling each other how he did it, what he saw, what he thought. After that shooting, a great part of their reluctance to start for the unknown vanished. Their guns had become their pals, the enemy became real, and the war came alive for them, and they didn't fear it so much anymore. That crew of sailors had just gone through what hundreds of thousands of other soldiers and sailors already had experienced the conversion from peaceful people into fighters. There's nothing especially remarkable about it, but it was a moving experience to see it happen. The story of our vast waterborne invasion from the time it left Africa until it disgorged upon the shores of Sicily is a story of the American Navy. The process of transporting the immense invasion force and protecting it on the way was one of the most thrilling jobs in this war. Our headquarters ships lay in the harbor for a week, waiting while all the other ships got loaded. Finally, we knew, without even being told, that the big moment had come, for all that day, slower troop-carrying barges had filed past us in an unbroken line, heading out to sea. Around four o'clock in the afternoon, the harbor was empty, and our ship slipped away from the pier. A magnificent sun was far down the arc of the sky, but it was still bright and the weather warm. We steamed out past the bomb-shattered city, 
past scores of ships sunk in the earlier battle for North Africa, past sailors and soldiers on land who weren't going along and who waved goodbye to us. We waved back with a feeling of superiority which we all felt inside without expressing it. We were part of something historic, practically men of destiny. Our vessel slid along at half speed, making almost no sound. Everybody except the men on duty was on deck for a last look at African soil. The mouth of the harbor was very narrow. Just as we were approaching the neck, a voice came over the ship's loudspeaker. Port side, attention! All the sailors snapped upright, and I with them, facing shoreward. There on the flat roof of the bomb-shattered custom house at the harbor mouth stood a rigid guard of honor, British tars and American blue jackets, with our two flags flying over them. The bugler played. The officers stood at salute. When the notes died out, there was not a sound. No one spoke. We slid past, off on our mission into the unknown. They drew dramatic things like that in the movies, but this one was genuine, a ceremony wholly true, old in tradition, and so real that I could not help feeling deeply proud. We sailed on past the stone breakwater with the waves beating against it and out into the dark blue of the Mediterranean. The wind was freshening, and far away mist began to form on a watery horizon. Suddenly we were aware of a scene that will shake me every time I think of it the rest of my life. It was our invasion fleet, formed there, far out to sea, waiting for us. There is no way of conveying the enormous size of that fleet. On the horizon it resembled a distant city. It covered half the skyline, and the dull-colored camouflage ships stood indistinctly against the curve of the dark water, like a solid formation of uncountable structures blending together. Even to be a part of it was frightening. I hope no American ever has to see its counterpart sailing against us. We caught up with the fleet, and through the remaining hours of daylight it worked slowly forward. Our ship and the other command ships raced around herding their broods into proper formation, signaling by flag and signal light. "'shooing and instructing and ordering "'until the ship-strewn sea began to be patterned "'by small clusters of vessels taking their proper courses. "'We stood at the rails and wondered how much the Germans knew of us. "'Surely this immense force could not be concealed. "'Reconnaissance planes couldn't possibly miss us. "'Axis agents on the shore had simply to look through binoculars "'to see the start of the greatest armada ever assembled "'up to that moment in the whole history of the world. "'Allied planes flew in formation far above us. Almost out of sight, great graceful cruisers and wicked destroyers raced on our perimeter to protect us. Just at dusk, a whole squadron of vicious little PT boats, their engines roaring in one giant combination like a force of heavy bombers, crossed our bow and headed for Sicily. Our guard was out. Our die was cast. Now there was no turning back. We moved on into the enveloping night that might have been a morning for us, or might not. But nobody... Truly nobody was afraid now, for we were on our way. Once headed for Sicily, our whole ship's crew was kept on condition two, all battle stations manned with half crews while the other half rested. But nobody slept much. The ship was packed to the gunwales. We were carrying extra army and navy staffs, and our small ship had about 150 people above normal capacity. The fleet of 2,000 ships was many, many times the size of the great Spanish armada. At least half of it was British. The planning was done together, British and Americans, and the figures were lumped together. But in the actual operation, 
We sailed in separate fleets, landed in separate areas. The 2,000 figure also included convoys that were in sea en route from England and America. They arrived with reinforcements a few days later. But either section of the invasion, American or British, was a gigantic achievement in itself. And the whole plan was originated, organized, and put into effect in the five short months following the Casablanca Conference. The bulk of our own invasion fleet came into existence after November of 1942. The United States Navy had the whole job of embarking, transporting, projecting, and landing American invasion troops in Sicily, then helping to fight the shore battle with their warships and afterward keeping the tremendously vital supplies and reinforcements flowing in steadily. After being with them throughout that operation, I must say my respect for the Navy is great. The personnel for the great task had to be built as quickly as the fleet itself. We did not rob the Pacific of anything. We created from whole cloth. There were a thousand officers staffing the new type invasion ships, and fewer than twenty of them were regular Navy men. The rest were all erstwhile civilians trained into sea dogs almost overnight. The bulk of the assault craft came across the ocean under their own power. They were flat-bottomed and not ideal for deep-water sailing. Their skippers were all youngsters of scant experience. Some of them arrived with hardly any equipment at all. As one Navy man said, this heterogeneous fleet was navigated across the Atlantic, mainly by spitting into the wind. The American invading force was brought from Africa to Sicily in three immense fleets sailing separately. Each of the three was in turn broken down into smaller fleets. It was utterly impossible to sail them all as one fleet. That would have been like trying to herd all the sheep in the world with one dog. The ships sailed from North Africa, out of every port, right down to the smallest ones. It was all worked out like a railroad schedule. Each of the three big United States fleets had a command ship carrying an admiral in charge of that fleet, and an army general in command of the troops being transported. Each command ship had been specially fitted out for the purpose, with extra space for war rooms. There, surrounded by huge maps, officers toiled at desks and scores of radio operators maintained communications. It was through these command ships that the various land battles were directed in the early stages of the invasion, before communication centers could be set up ashore. Our three fleets were not identical. One came directly from America, stopping in Africa only long enough for the troops to stretch their legs, then moving right on again. The big transport fleets were much easier to maneuver, but once they arrived, their difficulties began. Everything had to be unloaded into the lighter craft, which the big ships carried on their decks, then taken ashore. That meant a long process of unloading. When assault troops are being attacked by land, and waiting ships are catching it from the air, believe me, the speed of unloading is mighty important. In addition to the big transports and our hundreds of ocean-going landing craft, our fleet consisted of seagoing tugs, minesweepers, sub-chasers, submarines, destroyers, cruisers, mine layers, repair ships, and self-propelled barges mounting big guns. We had practically everything that floats. Nobody can ever know until after the war what planning the Sicilian invasion entailed, just what a staggering task it all was. In Washington, huge staffs worked on it until the last minute, then moved bag and baggage over to Africa. Thousands of civilians worked day and night for months. For months, over and over, troops and ships practiced landings. A million things had to be thought of and provided. That it could all be done in five months is a human miracle. And yet, 
one high naval officer said as we talked about the invasion details on the way over. The public will be disappointed when they learn where we landed. They expect us to invade Italy, France, Greece, Norway, and do it all at once. People just can't realize that we must take one step at a time, and this step we are taking now took nearly half a year to prepare. D-Day, Sicily We had a couple of bad moments as we went to invade Sicily. At the time, they both looked disastrous for us, but they turned out to have such happy endings that it seemed as though fate had deliberately plucked us from doom. The cause of the first near tragedy was the weather on the morning of the day on which we were to attack Sicily. The night before, it had turned miserable. Dawn came up gray and misty, and the sea began to kick up. Even our fairly big ships were rolling and plunging, and the little flat-bottomed landing craft were tossing around like corks. As the day wore on, it grew progressively worse. At noon, the sea was rough even to professional sailors. In mid-afternoon, it was breaking clean over the decks. By dusk, it was mountainous. The wind howled at 40 miles an hour. We could barely stand on deck, and our fire-spread convoy was a wallowing, convulsive thing. In the early afternoon, the high command aboard our various ships had begun to wrinkle their brows. They were perplexed, vexed, and worried. Damn it! Here the Mediterranean had been like a mill pond for a solid month, and now this storm had to come up out of nowhere. Conceivably, it could turn a whole venture into a disaster that would cost thousands of lives and prolong the war for months. These high seas and winds could cause many serious hazards. One, the majority of our soldiers would hit the beach weak and indifferent from seasickness, two-thirds of our fighting power destroyed. Two, our slowest barges, barely creeping along against the high waves, might miss the last rendezvous and arrive too late with their precious armored equipment. Three, high waves would make it next to impossible to launch the assault craft from the big transports. Boats would be smashed, lives lost, and the attack seriously weakened. There was a time when it seemed that to avoid complete failure, the landings would have to be postponed 24 hours. In that case, we would have had to turn around and cruise for an extra day, thus increasing the chance of being discovered and heavily attacked by the enemy. I asked our commanders about it. They said, God knows. Certainly they would have liked to change the plans, but by then it was impossible. We'd have to go through with it. Later I learned that Supreme High Command did actually consider postponement. Just before daylight, I lay down for a few minutes' nap, knowing the pre-dawn lull wouldn't last long once the sun came up. Sure enough, just as the faint light was beginning to show, bedlam broke loose for miles around us. The air was suddenly filled with sound and danger and tension, and the gray-lighted sky became measled with countless dark puffs of akak, enemy planes that appeared to dive-bomb our ships. They got a hot reception from our thousands of guns, and still hotter from one of our own planes, which had anticipated them and were waiting. A scene of terrific action then emerged from the veil of night. Our small assault craft were all up and down the beach, unloading and dashing off again. Ships of many sizes moved toward the shore, and others moved back from it. Still other ships, so many they were uncountable, spread out over the water as far as the eye could see. The biggest ones lay far off, waiting their turn to come in. They made a solid wall on the horizon behind us. Between that wall and the shoreline, the sea writhed with shipping. Through this hodgepodge, and running out at right angles to the beach like a beeline highway through a forest, was a single solid line of shore-bound barges, carrying tanks. They chugged along in Indian file, about 50 yards apart, 
slowly, yet with such calm relentlessness that I felt it would take a power greater than any I knew to divert them. The attacking airplanes left, but then Italian guns opened up on the hills back of the beach. At first the shells dropped on the beach, making yellow clouds of dust as they exploded. Then they started for the ships. They never did hit any of us, but they came so close it made our heads swim. They tried one target after another, and one of the targets happened to be our ship. The moment the shooting began, we got quickly underway, not to run off, but to be in motion and consequently harder to hit. One shell struck the water fifty yards behind us and threw up a geyser of spray. It made a terrific, flat, quacking sound as it burst, exactly like a mortar shell exploding on land. Our ship wasn't supposed to do much firing, but that was too much for the Admiral. He ordered our guns into action, and for the next ten minutes we sounded like Edgewood Arsenal blowing up. A few preliminary shots gave us our range, and then we started pouring shells into the town and into the gun positions in the hills. The whole vessel shook with every salvo, and scorched wadding came raining down on the deck. While shooting, we traveled at full speed, parallel to the shore, and about a mile out. For the first time, I found out how such a thing is done. Two destroyers and ourselves were doing the shelling, while all the other ships in close to land were scurrying around to make themselves hard to hit, turning in tight circles, leaving half-moon wakes behind them. The sea looked actually funny with all those semicircular white wakes splattered over it, and everything twisting around in such deliberate confusion. We sailed at top speed for about three miles, firing several times a minute. For some reason I was as thrilled with our unusual speed as with the noise of the steel we were pouring out. By watching closely I could follow our shells almost as far as the shore, and then see the gray smoke puffs after they hit. At the end of each run we turned so quickly that the ship heeled far over. Then we would start right back. The two destroyers did the same, and we would meet them about halfway. It was just like three teams of horses plowing a cornfield, back and forth back and forth, the plows taking alternate rows. The constant shifting put us closest to shore on one run, and furthest away a couple of runs later. At times we were right up on the edge of pale green water, too shallow to go any closer. During all this action, I stood on the big steel ammunition box marked Keep Off, guns on three sides of me and a smokestack at my back. It was as safe as any place else. It kept me out of the way, and it gave me a fine view of everything. Finally, the Italian fire dwindled off. Then the two destroyers went in as close to shore as they could get and resumed their methodical runs back and forth. Only this time, they weren't firing. They were belching terrific clouds of black smoke out of their stacks. The smoke wouldn't seem to settle, and they had to make four runs before the beach was completely hidden. Then, under this covering screen, our tank-carrying barges and more infantry boats made for the shore. Before long, we could see the tanks let go at the town. They had to fire only a couple of salvos before the town surrendered. That was the end of the beach fighting in our sector of the American front. Our biggest job was over. In invasion parlance, the day a force strikes a new country is called D-Day, and the time it hits the beach is H-Hour. In the 3rd Infantry Division, for which I was a very biased rooter, H-Hour had been set for 2.45 a.m. July 10th. That was when the first mass assault on the beach was to begin. Actually, the paratroopers and rangers were there several hours before. The other two large American forces, which traveled from North Africa in separate units, hit the beaches far down to our right about the same time we did. 
"'We could tell when they landed by the shooting "'during the first hour or so of the assault. "'Out on our ship it seemed to me "'that all hell was breaking loose ashore, "'but later when I looked back on it, "'actually knowing what had happened, "'it didn't seem so very dramatic. "'Most of our special section of coast "'was fairly easy to take, "'and our naval guns didn't send any fireworks ashore "'until after daylight. "'The assault troops did all the preliminary work "'with rifles, grenades, and machine guns. "'From our ship we could hear the bop, bop, bop "'of the machine guns, first short bursts, then long ones. I don't know whether I heard any Italian ones or not. In Tunisia we could always tell the German machine guns because they had fired so much faster than ours, but that night all the shooting seemed to be of one tempo, one quality. Now and then we could see a red tracer bullet arcing through the darkness. I remember one that must have ricocheted from a rock, for suddenly it turned and went straight up a long way into the sky. Once in a while there was a quick flash of a hand grenade. There wasn't even any aerial combat during the night, and only a few flares shot up from the beach. In actuality, our portion of the assault was far less spectacular than the practice landings I'd seen our troops make back in Algeria. A more dramatic show was in the sector to our right, some 12 or 15 miles down the beach. There, the 1st Infantry Division was having stiff opposition, and its naval escort stood off miles from shore and threw steel at the enemy artillery in the hills. On beyond, the 45th had rough seas and bad beaches. This was the first time I'd ever seen big gun tracer shells used at night, and it was fascinating. From where we sat, it was like watching a tennis game played with red balls, except that all the balls went in one direction. A golden flash would appear way off in the darkness. Out of the flash would come a tiny red dot. That was the big shell. Almost instantly it covered the first quarter of the total distance. Then uncannily, it would drop to a much slower speed, as though it had put on a brake. There didn't seem to be any tapering down between the high and low speeds. The shell went from high to low instantly, and instead of starting to arc downward as it hit the slower speed, it amazingly kept on in an almost flat trajectory, as though it were on wheels being propelled along a level road. Finally, after a flight so long it seemed unbelievable that the thing could still be in the air, it would disappear in a little flash as it hit something on the shore. Long afterward the sound of the heavy explosion came rolling across the water. When the daylight came, we looked from the boat deck across the water at the city of Licata. We could see the American flag flying from the top of a sort of fort on a hill directly behind the city. Although the city itself had not yet surrendered, some rangers had climbed up there and hoisted the flag. Our Navy can't be given too much credit for putting the troops ashore the way they did. You can't realize how nearly impossible it is to arrive in the dead of night at exactly the right spot with a convoy. Feel your way into the darkness. Pick out the designated pinpoint on an utterly strange shoreline, and then put a ship safely ashore right there. In our sector, every ship hit the beach just right. They tell me it was the first time in history that such a thing had ever been accomplished. The finest tribute to the Navy's marksmanship came from one soldier who later told Major General Lucian Truscott, 3rd Division Commander, Sir, I took my little black dog with me in my arms, and I sure was scared standing in that assault boat. Finally we hit the beach, and as we piled out into the water we were worse scared than ever. Then we waded ashore and looked around, and there right ahead of me was a white house, just where you said it would be. And after that, I wasn't scared. Since I was a correspondent duly accredited to the Navy, I had intended to concentrate on the seaborne aspect of the invasion, and had not planned to go ashore at all for several days. After the way things went, however, I couldn't resist the chance to see what it was like on land. 
I hopped an assault barge and went ashore there on the south coast about six hours after our first assault troops had landed. They had found nobody at all. The thing apparently was a complete surprise. Our troops had been trained to such a point that instead of being pleased with no opposition, they were thoroughly annoyed. I stopped to chat with the crew of a big howitzer which had just been dug in and camouflaged. The gun's crew was digging foxholes. The ground was hard and it was very tough digging. Our soldiers were mad at the Italians. We didn't even get to fire a shot, one of them said in real disgust. Another one said, Eh, they're gangplank soldiers. Whatever that means. I talked with one ranger who had been through Dieppe, El Guitar, and other tough battles, and he said Sicily was by far the easiest of all. He added that it left him jumpy and nervous to get trained to Razor Edge and then had the job fizzle out. The poor guy, he was sore about it. That ranger was Sergeant Muriel White, a friendly blonde fellow of medium size from Middlesbrough, Kentucky. He'd been overseas a year and a half. Back home he had a wife and a five-year-old daughter. He used to run his uncle's bar in Middlesbrough, and he said when the war was over he was going to drink the bar dry and then just settle down behind it for the rest of his life. Sergeant White and his commanding officer were in the first wave to hit the shore. A machine gun pillbox was shooting at them, and they made up the hill for it about a quarter mile away. They used hand grenades. Three of them got away, White said, but the other three went to heaven. Our sector, on the western end of the invasion, covered the territory each side of the city of Lakata, about 14 miles of beachfront. When I landed, the beach was already thoroughly organized, and it was really an incredible scene. "'incredible in that we'd done so much in just a few hours. "'It looked actually as though we'd been working there for months. "'Shortly after dawn, our shore troops and Navy gunboats "'had knocked out the last of the enemy artillery on the hillsides. "'From then on, that first day was just a normal one "'of unloading ships on the beach as fast as possible. "'The only interruptions were half a dozen or so "'lightning-like dive bombings. "'The roadblocks outside town were laughable.' They consisted merely of light wooden frameworks about the size of a kitchen table with barbed wire wrapped around them. These sections were laid across the road and all we had to do was pick them up and lay them aside. They wouldn't have stopped a cow, let alone a tank. Since the invading soldiers of our section didn't have much battle to talk about, they looked around to see what this new country had to offer. And the most commented upon discovery among the soldiers that first day was something totally unexpected. It wasn't Signorinas or Vino or Mount Etna. It was the fact that they found fields of ripe tomatoes. And did they eat them? I heard at least two dozen men speak of it during the day, as though they'd located gold. Others said they'd come upon some watermelons, too, but I couldn't find any. I hitched a ride into the city of Lakata with Major Charles Monier of Dixon, Illinois, Sergeant Earl Glass of Colfax, Illinois, and Sergeant Jaspar Teormina of 94 Star Street, Brooklyn. Engineers all. Taramina did the driving, and the other two held Tommy guns at the ready, looking for snipers. Taramina himself was so busy looking for snipers that he ran right into a shell hole in the middle of the street and almost upset our jeep. He was of Sicilian descent. Indeed, his father had been born in a town just twenty miles west of Lakata, and for all the sergeant knew, his grandmother was still living there. He could speak good Italian, so he did the talking to the local people on the streets. They told him they were sick of being browbeaten and starved by the Germans, who had lots of wheat locked in granaries in Lakata. The natives hoped we would unlock the buildings and give them some of it. Lakata is a city of about 35,000 souls. A small river runs through the town, which has a wide main street and a nice small harbor. 
"'The buildings are of local stone, dull gray and very old, but substantial. "'The city hadn't been bombed. "'The only damage came from a few shells we had thrown into it from the ships just after daylight. "'The corners were knocked off a few buildings, "'and some good-sized holes were gouged in the streets, "'but on the whole, Lakata had got off pretty nicely. "'The local people said the reason their army put up such a poor show in our sector "'was that the soldiers didn't want to fight.' It was obvious they didn't, but at that stage of the game, we had little contact with other American forces, and we thought the Italians might have lain down there in order to fight harder somewhere else. Before the sun was two hours high, our troops had built prisoner-of-war camps out of barbed wire on the rolling hillsides, and all day long groups of soldiers and civilians were marched up the roads and into the camps. At the first camp I came to, about 200 Italian soldiers and the same number of civilians were sitting around on the ground outside the wire. There were only two Germans, both officers. They sat apart in one corner, disdainful of the Italians. One had his pants off and his legs were covered with mercurochrome where he'd been scratched. Some civilians had even brought their goats into the cages with them. After being investigated, the harmless captives were turned loose. The Italian prisoners seemed anything but downhearted. They munched on biscuits, talked cheerfully to anyone who would listen to them, and asked their American guards for matches. As usual, the area immediately became full of stories about prisoners who'd lived 20 years in Brooklyn and who came up grinning, asking how things were in dear old Flatbush. They seemed relieved and friendly, like people who had just been liberated rather than conquered. Civilians on the roads and in the towns smiled and waved. Kids saluted. Many gave their version of the V sign by holding up both arms. Over and over they told us they didn't want to fight. Our soldiers weren't very responsive to the Sicilians' greetings. They were too busy getting equipment ashore, rounding up the real enemies, and establishing a foothold to indulge in any hand-waving monkey business. After all, we were still at war, and these people, although absurd and pathetic, were enemies and caused us the misery of coming a long way to whip them. On the whole, the natives seemed a pretty third-rate lot. They were poorly dressed and looked as if they'd always been. Few of their faces had much expression, and they kept getting in the way of traffic, just like the Arabs. By nightfall, most of our invading soldiers summed up their impressions of their newly acquired soil and its inhabitants by saying, Hell, this is just as bad as Africa. When we got our first look at Sicily, we were all disappointed. I, for one, had always romanticized it in my mind as a lush, green, picturesque island. I guess I must have been thinking of the Isle of Capri. Instead, the south coast of Sicily seemed to us a drab, light-brown country and there weren't many trees. The fields of grain had been harvested, and they were dry and naked and dusty. The villages were pale gray and indistinguishable at a distance from the rest of the country. Water was extremely scarce. On the hillside, a half mile or so back of the beach, grass fires, started by the shells of our gunboats, burned smokily. It was cooler than North Africa. In fact, the weather would have been delightful had it not been for the violent wind that rose in the afternoon and blew so fiercely we could hardly talk in the open. That wind, whipping our barges about in the shallow water, delayed us more than the Italian soldiers did. At the end of that first day of our invasion of Sicily, we Americans looked about us with awe and unbelief, and not a little alarm. It had all been so easy that we had the jumpy, insecure feeling of something dreadfully wrong somewhere. We had expected a terrific slaughter on the beaches, and there was none. Instead of thousands of casualties along the 14-mile front of our special sector, the total was astonishingly small. By sunset, 
"'The army had taken everything we had hoped to get "'during the first five days. "'Even by mid-afternoon, the country for miles inland "'was so saturated with American troops and vehicles, "'it looked like Tunisia after months of our habitation, "'instead of a hostile land just attacked that morning. "'And the Navy's job of bringing the vast invading force to Sicily "'was three days ahead of its schedule of unloading ships. "'Convoys had started back to Africa for new loads "'before the first day was over.' Our own invading fleet had escaped without losses other than normal mechanical breakdowns. It was wonderful, and yet it was also illogical. Even if the Italians did want to quit, why did the Germans let them? What had happened? What did the enemy have up his sleeve? Nobody was under any illusion that the Battle of Sicily was over. Strong counterattacks were probably inevitable. Also, German dive bombings had begun at the rate of two per hour, but everyone felt that whatever happened... We had a head start that was all in our favor. Every night throughout our invasion, we listened to the British broadcast and to the special propaganda program directed at American troops. A purported American, Midge, nicknamed Olga by the boys, worked hard at her job. She tried to tell them that their sweethearts would marry somebody else while they were overseas fighting a phony war for the Jewish Roosevelt and that there would be no jobs for them when they got home. The boys listened to her partly to get mad "'partly because the program always had excellent music, "'and partly to get a laugh. "'The biggest laugh the boys had had since joining the Navy "'was the night the traitorous Olga was complaining "'about something horrible President Roosevelt had done. "'She said it made her almost ashamed to be an American. "'Olga had a come-hither voice, and she spoke straight American. "'Every night I'd hear the boys conjecturing "'about what she looked like. "'Some thought she was probably an old hag "'with a fat face and peroxide hair.' but the majority liked to visualize her as looking as gorgeous as she sounded. The most frequently expressed opinion heard aboard ship that if they ever got to Berlin, they'd like to first sock Olga on the chin and then make love to her. Medics and Casualties Behind me is a distinguished and unbroken record for being sick in every country I ever visited. Since Sicily was new terrain for me, I figured I might as well get sick right away and get it over with. So on my fifth day ashore, they threw me into an ambulance and off we went hunting for a hospital. We were looking for a certain clearing station and we couldn't find it because it was moving forward while we were moving back and we passed on different roads. The result was that the determined ambulance boys drove nearly halfway across Sicily before they finally gave up and started back. We drove a total of 75 agonizing miles over dusty gravel roads and then found the hospital all set up and ready for business within four miles of where we had started from in the first place. The clearing station was a small tent hospital of the 45th Division, a sort of flag stop for wounded on the way back from the lines. The first regular hospital was about 15 miles to the rear. The average patient stayed in the clearing station only a few hours at most, but once the doctors got a squint at me, they beamed, rubbed their rubber gloves, and cried out, Ah, here's the medical freak we've been waiting for. We'll just keep this guy and play with him a while. So they put me to bed on a cot, gave me panagoric and bismuth, aspirin and codeine, soup and tomato juice, and finally wound up with morphine and a handful of sulfaguanidine. The only thing I can say on behalf of my treatment is that I became well and hearty again. My family physician in this case was Captain Joe Duran of Iowa City, Iowa. Captain Duran, a young and enthusiastic doctor, was different than most frontline doctors in that his main interest lay in treating sick soldiers rather than wounded ones. Captain Duran liked to get at the seat of a man's ills. To further this interest, he had set up a nice little laboratory in one of the tents, complete with microscope and glass tubes. 
"'He was always taking specimens from his patients "'and then peering at his test tubes like Dr. Aerosmith. "'Captain Duran's germ quest upon me was somewhat agitated "'by the fact that on the evening of my arrival "'he received a letter saying he had become a father for the second time, "'about six weeks previously. "'He was so overjoyed he gave me an extra shot of morphine, "'and I was asleep before I could say congratulations.' The doctors kept me in what is known as a semi-comatose condition for about 24 hours, and then they began to get puzzled. At first they thought I had dysentery, but the little laboratory showed no dysentery. Then they thought I had malaria, so they called in a couple of Italian malaria experts from down the highway. They chatted in English, punched my finger, took blood specimens, and reported back later that I had no malaria. By that time I was getting better anyhow, so they decided that what I had was a non-conforming, and at the moment... Fairly common illness, which they called battlefield fever. A man with this ailment aches all over and has a high temperature. The doctors thought it was caused by a combination of too much dust, bad eating, not enough sleep, exhaustion, and the unconscious nerve tension that comes to everybody in a frontline area. A man doesn't die of battlefield fever, but he thinks he's going to. They put me in a corner of the tent, and in my section at various times there were three officers with similar fevers. Their illnesses were even briefer than mine. They all graduated before I did. One of my classmates was a red-headed and bespectacled lieutenant named Ray Chamberlain from Clarksville, Ohio. After going into the Army, Chamberlain bought a half-interest in a grocery store back home. Wherever they brought us fruit juice in cans, he would take a good gander to see if it was a product his partner was selling back in the States. Another fellow sufferer was Lieutenant Richard Van Sickle of Sawarin, New Jersey. He used to be in the automobile business at Perth Amboy. He was married to Claire Rafferty, a delicious former Powers model, and he carried magazine cover pictures of her in his map case. The third was Major L.Z. Brown of Okmulgee, Oklahoma, who used to be president and general sales manager of the Cleveland Tractor Company. He was a tough outdoor man, and he was so thoroughly disgusted at getting sick that it made him even sicker. He celebrated his 44th birthday just before entering the hospital. Major Brown distinguished himself in our midst by paying a flat $100 to the station's chaplain for a $14 air mattress. His own gear was all lost in the original Sicily landings, and, as he said, money meant nothing over there anyhow, so why not pay $100 for something that would help a little? All my life I've enjoyed being in hospitals as soon as the original moaning and groaning stages passed, and my stay at this frontline army clearing station was no exception. On the third day I was scared to death for fear I was well enough to leave, but the doctor looked thoughtful and said he wanted me to stay another day. I would have kissed him if he had been a nurse instead of a man with a mustache and a stethoscope. That was the only trouble with the hospital. It didn't have any nurses. In fact, we lacked a number of the usual hospital touches. We were hidden, inevitably, in an olive grove, and our floors were merely the earth. The toilet was a ditch with canvas around it. If we washed, we did so in our own steel helmets. There were no such things as hospital pajamas or bathrobes. I arrived in my army coveralls and left in my coveralls. "'and I never once had them off all the time I was there. "'Every morning a chaplain came around "'with a big box full of cigarettes, tooth powder, and stuff. "'During the day they kept the sides of our tent rolled up, "'and it was pleasant enough lying there with nothing to do. "'But at night the tent had to be tightly closed for the blackout, "'and it became deadly stuffy, "'and all night long the litter-bearers "'would be coming and going with new wounded. "'In the dim glow of our single lantern the scene was eerie, "'and sleep was almost impossible.' So the last couple of nights we moved our cots outdoors and slept under the wide starry skies of Sicily, and attendants brought our medicine out there in the dark. German bombers came over, but we just stayed put. The doctor had me on a liquid diet at first, 
but I gradually talked him into advancing me to a soft diet and finally to a regular one. The progression from liquid to soft to regular diet was one of the great experiences of my life, for believe it or not, all three diets were exactly the same thing, soup and canned tomato juice. When I accused the doctor of duping me, he grinned and said, Well, it comes under the heading of keeping the patient happy by pretending to humor his whims. Happy? I was hungry. But I survived, and actually I've never been treated better anywhere than by those doctors and men of the 45th Division. The 45th Division was originally made up largely of men from Oklahoma and West Texas. I didn't realize how different certain parts of our country are from others until I saw those men set off in a frame, as it were, in a strange, faraway place. The men of Oklahoma are drawling and soft-spoken. They're not smart alecks. Something of the purity of the soil seems to be in them. Even their cussing is simpler and more profound than the torrential obscenities of eastern city men. An Oklahoman of the plains is straight and direct. He is slow to criticize and hard to anger, but once he's convinced of the wrong of something, brother, watch out. Those wounded Oklahomans were madder about the war than anybody I'd seen on that side of the ocean. They weren't so mad before they went into action, but by then the Germans across the hill were all sons of bitches. And those men of the 45th, the newest division over there, had already fought so well they had drawn the high praise of the commanding general of the corps of which the division was a part. It was those quiet men from the farms, ranches, and small towns of Oklahoma who poured through my tent with their wounds. I lay there and listened for what each one would say first. One fellow, seeing a friend, called out, I think I'm going to make her, meaning he was going to pull through. A second asked, Have they got beds in the hospital? Lord, how I want to go to bed. A third complained, I'm hungry, but I can't eat anything. I keep getting sick in my stomach. Another, as he winced from the deep probing for a buried piece of shrapnel on his leg, said, Go ahead, you're the doc. I can stand it. A fifth remarked jocularly, I'll have to write the old lady tonight and tell her she missed out on the $10,000 again. The youngster who was put down beside me said, Hey, Pop, how you getting along? I call you Pop because you're gray-headed. You don't mind, do you? I told him I didn't care what he called me. He was friendly, but you could tell from his forward attitude he was not from Oklahoma. When I asked him, it turned out he came from New Jersey. One big blonde infantryman had slight flesh wounds in the face and on the back of his neck. He had a patch up his upper lip which prevented him from moving it, and it made him talk in a grave, straight-faced manner that was comical. I've never seen anybody so mad in my life. He went from one doctor to another, trying to get somebody to sign his card returning him to duty. The doctors explained patiently that if he returned to the front, his wounds would become infected, and he'd be a burden to his company instead of a help. They tried to entice him by telling him there would be nurses back in the hospital. But in his peaceful Oklahoma drawl, he retorted, To hell with the nurses. I want to get back to fighting. Dying men were brought into our tent, men whose death rattle silenced the conversation and made all of us thoughtful. When a man was almost gone, the surgeons would put a piece of gauze over his face. He could breathe through it, but we couldn't see his face well. Twice within five minutes, chaplains came running. One of those occasions haunted me for hours. The wounded man was still semi-conscious. The chaplain knelt down beside him and two ward boys squatted nearby. The chaplain said, John, I'm going to say a prayer for you. Somehow this stark announcement hit me like a hammer. He didn't say, I'm going to pray for you to get well. He just said he was going to say a prayer. It was obvious to me that he meant the final prayer. It was as though he had said, Brother, you may not know it, but your goose is cooked. Anyhow, he voiced the prayer, 
and the weak, gasping man tried vainly to repeat the words after him. When he'd finished, the chaplain added, John, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Then he rose and dashed off on some other call, and the ward boys went about their duties. The dying man was left utterly alone, just lying there on his litter on the ground, lying in an aisle because the tent was full. Of course it couldn't be otherwise, but the aloneness of that man as he went through the last few minutes of his life was what tormented me. I felt like going over and at least holding his hand while he died, but it would have been out of order, and I didn't do it. I wish now that I had. Just outside the surgical tent was a small trench filled with bloody shirt sleeves and pant legs the surgeons had snipped off wounded men in order to get at the wounds more quickly. The surgeons redressed these wounds and sprinkled on sulfonylamide powder. Sometimes they poked for buried shrapnel or recompressed broken arteries to stop the flow of blood. They didn't give general anesthesia there. Occasionally they gave a local, but usually the wounded man was so doped up with morphine by the time he reached the station that he didn't feel much of anything. The surgeons believed in using lots of morphine. It spares a man so much pain and consequently relieves the general shock at his system. On my third day at the clearing station, when I was beginning to feel better, I spent most of my time around the operating table. As they undressed each new wound, I held firmly to a lamp bracket above my head, for I was still weak, and I didn't want to disgrace myself by suddenly keeling over at the sight of a bad wound. Many of the wounds were hard to look at, and yet Lieutenant Michael DiGiorgio said he'd never seen a human body so badly smashed up in Sicily as he had in traffic accidents back in New York, where he used to practice. One soldier had caught a machine gun bullet right alongside his nose. It had made a small clean hole and gone clear through his cheek, leaving, as it came out, a larger hole just beneath his ear. It gave me the willies to look at it. Yet the doctor said it wasn't serious at all and would heal with no bad effects. The man with the most nerve was the one who had two big holes in his back. I could have put my whole hand in either one of them. As the surgeons worked on him, he lay on his stomach and talked a blue streak. I killed five of the sons of bitches with a hand grenade just before they got me, he said. What made me so damn mad was that I was just out of reach of my rifle and couldn't crawl over to it or I'd have got five more of them. Jeez, I'm hungry. I ain't had nothing to eat since yesterday morning. But most of the wounded said nothing at all when brought in, either because they saw no acquaintances to talk to or because they were too weak from their wounds or too dopey from morphine. Of the hundreds that passed through while I was there, I heard only one man groan with pain. Another thing that struck me as the wounded came through in a ceaseless stream on their stretchers was how dirt and exhaustion reduced human faces to such a common denominator. Everybody they carried in looked alike. The only break in the possession of identically tired and dirty men would be when an extreme blonde was carried in. His light hair would seem like a flower in a row of weeds. Every day at the front produces its quota of freak wounds and hair-breadth escapes. Almost any wounded man had missed death by a matter of inches. Sometimes a bullet can go clear through a man and not hurt him much, while at other times an infinitesimal fragment of a shell can pick out one tiny vital spot and kill him. Bullets and fragments do crazy things. Our surgeons picked out more than 200 pieces of shrapnel from one guy. There was hardly a square inch of him from head to toe that wasn't touched. Yet none of them made a vital hit, and the soldier lived. I remember one soldier who had a hole in the front of his leg just below the hip. It was about the size of a half dollar. It didn't look bad at all. Yet beneath that little wound, the leg bone was shattered and arteries were severed, 
and the surgeons were working hard to get the arteries closed so he wouldn't bleed to death. Another had caught a small shell fragment in the wrist. It had entered at a shallow angle and gone clear up the arm to the elbow and had remained buried there. The skin wasn't even broken at the elbow, but right over the spot where the fragment stopped was a blister as big as a pigeon's egg. The blister had been raised by the terrific heat of that tiny piece of metal. That's one thing most people don't realize, that fragments from bursting shells are white hot. During the air raid just before our ship left Africa, a heavy bomb had burst about a hundred yards away. Among the many fragments that hit our ship was one about half as big as a tennis ball. It first struck a bronze water pipe along the ship's rail, then tore through a steel bulkhead into the radio room, wounded a sailor on the shoulder, turned at right angles and went through a radio set, and finally shot through one more steel bulkhead before it stopped. When we picked up the fragment, it had a quarter-inch plate of solid bronze on one side of it. The fragment's intense heat had simply welded on a sheet of bronze as it went through the water pipe at the rail. It was as solid as though it had been done on purpose. There in northern Sicily, it was all hill-fighting, as it had been in northern Tunisia, only worse. Getting the wounded out was often a problem. We had one wounded man who had been lowered by ropes over a sheer 75-foot cliff. He said he wasn't so concerned about his wounds, but the thought that maybe the rope would break gave him the worst scare of his life. German medical facilities were apparently as good as ours. Captured medical supply dumps showed that they were well stocked with the finest stuff. We knew that their system for collecting their wounded and burying their dead was efficient, for it was only after the most sudden and rapid advances on our part that we found their dead unburied. We also captured several big Italian medical dumps. Our doctors found our surgical instruments far superior to the Italians, but both the Germans and the Italians had bandages and compresses that were better than ours. There were many kinds of human beings among the wounded in our clearing station tent during the time I spent there. We had a couple of slightly wounded Puerto Ricans, one of whom still carried his guitar and sat up on his stretcher and strummed lightly on it. There were full-blooded Indians, and Negroes, and New York Italians, and plain American ranch hands, and Spanish Americans from down Mexico way. There were local Sicilians who had been hit by trucks. There was a captured Italian soldier who said his own officers had shot him in the face for refusing to attack. There were two American aviators who had been fished out of the sea. There were some of our own medics who had been wounded as they worked under shell fire. There was even one German soldier who had been shot apparently while trying to escape to Italy in a small boat. He was young, thin, scared to death, and objected furiously to being given a shot of morphine. He seemed to think we were torturing him. When he finally discovered he was being treated exactly like everybody else, his amazement grew. I could see bewilderment and gratitude in his face when the ward boys brought him water and then food. And when at last the chaplain, making his morning rounds, gave him cigarettes, candy, tooth powder, and soap, the same as all the rest, he sat up grinning and played with them as though he were a child on Christmas morning. It took him five minutes to find out how to get the cellophane wrapper off his pack of cigarettes, and our whole tent stopped to watch in amusement. Some of the wounded were sick at the stomach. One tough-looking New York Italian, faint with malaria, tried to crawl outside the tent to be sick, but passed out cold on the way. He was lying there on the ground in his drawers, yellow as death, when we noticed him. He was carried back, and ten minutes later, was all over his sudden attack and as chipper as anybody. Other men were as hungry as bears. Still others couldn't eat a bite. One fellow, with his shattered arm sticking up at right angles in its metal rack, 
gobbled chicken noodle soup, which a ward boy fed him, while the doctor punched and probed at his other arm to insert the big needle that feeds blood plasma. That front-line clearing station was made up of doctors and men who were ordinary, normal people back home. The station commandant was Captain Carl Carrico of Reba Drive, Houston, Texas. His wife and eight-year-old boy were in Houston. He was a slow, friendly man, speckled all over with big red freckles. He took his turn at surgery, along with the others, usually wearing coveralls. The other surgeons were Captain Carson Oglesby of Muskogee, Oklahoma, Captain Leander Powers of Savannah, Georgia, Captain William Dugan of Hamburg, New York, and Lieutenant Michael DiGiorgio of New York. The station's medical doctor was Captain Joe Duran of Iowa City, and the dentist was Captain Leonard Cheek of Alda, Oklahoma. These men lived a rough and tumble life. They slept on the ground, worked ghastly hours, were sometimes under fire, and handled a flow of wounded that would sicken and dishearten a person less immune to it. Time and again as I lay in my tent, I heard wounded soldiers discussing among themselves the wonderful treatment they had had at the hands of the medics. They'd get a little glory back home when it's all over, but they had some recompense right there in the gratitude of the men they treated. Thus ends our segment of Ernie Pyle's Brave Men. We'll leave a link to his books for you in the show notes. On April 17, 1945, Ernie Pyle came ashore with the Army's 305th Infantry Regiment of the 77th Liberty Patch Division on Lajima, then known as Lashima, a small island northwest of Okinawa. The following day, after local enemy opposition had apparently been neutralized, he was traveling by jeep with Lieutenant Colonel Joseph B. Coolidge, the commanding officer of the 305th, toward Coolidge's new command post when the jeep encountered enemy machine gun fire. The men immediately took cover in a nearby ditch. A little later, Pyle and I raised up to look around, Coolidge reported. Another burst hit the road over our heads. I looked at Ernie and saw he'd been hit. A bullet had entered Pyle's left temple just under his helmet, killing him instantly. Pyle was buried with his helmet on, among other battle casualties, with an infantry private on one side and a combat engineer on the other. The men of the army unit he was covering erected a monument, which still stands, at the site of his death. Its inscription reads, At this spot, the 77th Infantry Division lost a buddy. Ernie Pyle, April 18, 1945. Eleanor Roosevelt, who frequently quoted Pyle's war dispatches in her newspaper column, My Day, paid tribute to him there the following day. I shall never forget how much I enjoyed meeting him here in the White House last year, she wrote and how much I admired this frail and modest man who could endure hardships because he loved his job and our men. Though newspapers reported that his wife Geraldine took the news bravely, her health declined rapidly in the months following Ernie's death. She died on November 23, 1945. They had no children. After the war, Powell's remains were reinterred at the Army Cemetery on Okinawa and later at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu. In 1983, he was posthumously awarded the Purple Heart, a rare honor for a civilian, by the 77th Division Successor Unit, the 77th Army Reserve Command. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries for this episode, Remembering Ernie Pyle. It serves as a reminder that not all the men and women who gave their lives for this country carried a gun. Ernie carried a pen and a typewriter. 1001 Heroes is a proud part of the 1001 Stories podcast network, which includes 1001 classic short stories and tales, 
1001 Stories for the Road, and our new show, Radio Days, When Radio Was King, which comes out every Wednesday and Sunday night, wherever great podcasts are found. If it's not out there yet, we'll let you know as soon as it launches. We've handpicked the old shows for quality and entertainment value, and I've become a true fan of shows I never even knew existed. They call radio the theater of the mind, and that's a true statement, because in the days before TV was throwing images at us, radio shows had to be well-acted and well-scripted to catch people's attention and make them come back every week for more entertainment. Radio captures our imagination and asks our brains to get to work, using clean entertainment, whereas TV either stuns us with over-the-top gore and action, or blasts images at us that embarrass half the family, or lulls us to sleep. Try a few episodes of Radio Days, and you'll be hooked forever. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.